Say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. How's everyone doing? Good. All right. Glad you're here. If I've not met you, uh, my name's Chris. I'm uh, the lead pastor here at Riverstone. I'm thankful that you are engaging um, online or in person. Uh, last week, if you were with us, uh, Scott gave us some great food for thought going into the new year. Uh, I don't know about you, I was uh, deeply encouraged by chewing on some of the wisdom that he dropped last week. And it's funny, I was actually talking to someone before service last week about journaling and the lack of it in both of our lives. We both just admitted, like, we don't really do that anymore. But I decided while Scott was preaching, I was like, I'm going to give it a whirl, wrote down some things he said. And then over the past week, in several moments of quiet that I was able to carve out, I was able to kind of go back to some of those things that he said and read through them and kind of sat with them. And I, I found it uh, profoundly meaningful. In my week, uh, it anchored my heart uh, on something that I felt was true. I felt like when I did that, I gave direction to my mind. And it felt like I was honoring the truths that I believed that I heard. And some of them, it wasn't until I kind of circled back and sat with it again that I was like, wow, you know, this is, this is true. And it just got me thinking about uh, years and years of profound truths that have gone into one of my ears and out the other. Uh, like all week, all week long, like I listen to amazing pastors on, and on podcasts, right? Just driving in the car, right? Just like, mm, amen, right? Chill bumps in the car, praising them, right? But I can't, I can't remember half of what they said, you know? It was a really exciting drive. Uh, but then, I, you know, what do they talk about? I don't know, man, but I was excited about it, you know? If we are dealing with what we believe to be ultimately true, um, I just want to suggest to you that it's worth more than just an amen. Uh, and my grandma used to say, the faintest of inks, is better than the strongest of memories. Uh, so I want to encourage you, man. Uh, we have these little free journals in the cafe. I've got an app on my iPad sometimes I use. If you don't journal, I don't really either. Uh, that's all right. But it may be worth you writing down what you think God may be speaking to you and then make it a priority to circle back around that weekend. If you would participate in that practice, there may be profound impacts as you be intentional about ruminating on things that I'm assuming maybe you believe are ultimately true. Um, so I was, as I was trying to do that this week and praying about what we could talk about today, uh, we, we have two weeks and then we're going to jump into a series um, on our mission statement, our new mission statement, a couple weeks. Um, one of the scriptures that uh, Scott referenced just kind of slapped me in the face a couple of times, just bah, 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 slapped me around. And I thought I would slap you around with it. So... <laughs> Philippians 3, 7 and 8. 
He, this is the scripture he references. This is his anchor scripture. And we're going to riff off of it, okay? Philippians 3, 7, and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything loss because, or you might, might compare, if you have a, your versions open, your Bibles open, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And Scott paraphrased that and went something like this. If you compared all of the pleasures and joys and accomplishments and accolades of this world to Christ, Christ wins. That's what he said. And that's what I said. Amen. I believe that. Wrote that down, you know. And as I circled around back to that this week, and as I begin to reflect on that sentiment, Jesus, better than every pleasure, every joy, every good gain, every advantage that I enjoy in this world, I began to realize this is a staggering claim. And we have a very easy tendency to come across something like that and say, that's amen. And then just go on with our lives. So I want to say, hold on a second. Let's just park there for a second. Okay? Christ is better than all the pleasures in the world? What about the first time you held your newborn baby? You better than that? What about the first time you bought a car with your hard-earned money? That's a good feeling, huh? Right? Get a little rev, a little whatever it was, 99 Mazda something, right? <laughs> what about the first time you uh, bought a house with your ho- own hard-earned money? Or what about the day, for me, I thought about the day that my now father-in-law escorted his daughter down the aisle to take my hand? What about the sweet rest of vacation? Away from work and all the chaos, right? You're telling me, Paul, that Jesus is better than all those things that I've experienced? I mean, Jesus is sweet and all, did cool stuff. But like, are we talking about the same guy, Paul? Like, he seems like a nice guy, right? Like, we'll invite him over for dinner sometime. But Better than every joy and pleasure the world has to... Are we talking about the same guy, first of all, and are we talking about the same world? He didn't have internet back then, you know? Like, he didn't even have, barely had indoor plumbing, Paul. We've come a long way, bro. Like, the world has a lot to offer. I can press a button in my pocket computer and food will be delivered to my door, right? The world, I mean, what, better than Chipotle? Right? After a hard working day, you're exhausted and starving and you eat a burrito the size of your quad. Jesus is better than that. What what about filet mignon? Huh? Cooked over an open flame. Just right. With that cup of special something beside it. Paul, you're saying Jesus is better than these things? What is your guilty pleasure food? Huh? Possessions, vacations, rest, leisure, hobbies, food, sex. Paul, better than this, right? What about, what about this? What about this? 
There's a lot of pleasure in life, y'all. A lot of pleasure to be had. A lot of Christians have a very kind of Heisman approach to these things, right? What about, what about the joy of good, right, moral, hard-earned accomplishments? That's a pleasure. What a joy. Have you ever just like worked your tail off and received the reward of your labor? There's a sweetness to that. I think God smiles on that. He made you to work, man. Made you to work in the garden, right? Go rule the land, right? There's something good about that. What about that, Paul? Aren't we, doesn't Ecclesiastes say we're supposed to work hard and enjoy the fruit of our labors? You're saying Jesus is better than good old hard, good old fashioned hard work and excellence. Now, you, I, I, a couple years ago, I had some guys take some trees down at my house. They turned cutting trees down into an Olympic sport. It was, um, I got no work done that day. I just sat in my window and watched them. It was just like a choreographed dance. It was, have you ever seen someone do something with such an amount of excellence that it's awe-inspiring? You're saying, Paul, the experience of Jesus is better than all that stuff, right? I, I can't think of a day that I've been just like praying and decided this was so epic. I just got to do this all day. I, I can't. <laughs> and he's saying, right, but I watched those guys cut down a tree because it was awesome, man. Like one time I was like, dude, that's going to hit my house. Again. Nope, nope, didn't it? Hit the ground. It was amazing, right? Now, here's what's so interesting about the context of Paul's statement here. When he says, I'm, which we didn't read today, we read last week, straining forward, right? Straining forward, uh, forgetting what lies behind. You know, he's not just talking about leaving behind or not focusing on failure and shame and sin. Yeah, we should do that, and that's a part of it. But he, that's not what he's talking about. That's not the context of that verse. When he says, I'm straining forward to what is ahead, he's talking about not focusing on and paying attention to his accomplishments. In fact, his religious accomplishments, read the beginning of chapter 3, right? It is a list of his religious accolades. So, this, I mean, this is profound, right? The very thing so many of us point to to prove our worth and value. I preach at church. I lead a small group. I read my, you right? He's saying trash compared to knowing Jesus. This is staggering, y'all. He said, I don't forget my failures. I forget my successes. Those things, trash compared to knowing Jesus, right? He says, if the end of all that stuff, right, all your religious effort, right? Some of us are trying hard, you know? You, you mocking my effort, Chris? No, no, I'm just, some of us are trying hard, right? But he's saying, if the end of all those efforts isn't knowing Christ personally, if the goal isn't Christ himself, you're missing the point and it's rubbish. Or as Scott pointed out last week, excrement is actually the word that Paul used, right? And it's kind of worse than that. that dung is what he said, a pile of, okay? So, that's gross, pastor. Okay, I'm just reading the Bible, all right? Bible doesn't pull punches, right? Paul wants you to kind of wake up a little bit. All the satisfaction we try to attain by looking down our nose at others and pretending we're morally superior, right? Pile of crap. That's what, sorry, that's what he says, okay? All right? Compared to, compared to put beside the satisfaction of knowing Jesus. Your best religious efforts, your best heroic acts of obedience and sacrifice. Like good acts of obedience. Are we chatting here? Yes. Okay? This is not just a negative connotation, right? I'm talking about like selfish, um, selfless, oops, selfless 
heroic acts. He says, it's poop compared to knowing and walking with Jesus. I mean, think about this. Let's just sit there for a second. Think about all the right self-sacrificing acts of obedience you've made for others. Huh? Right? All of us have acts of sacrifice that we make for relationships, for jobs, for our friends, right? Things that really cost us, right? Last night, I have a great, some very heroic, last night, great example. I, I didn't just take the dish to the sink. I put it in the dishwasher. If that's not heroism, I don't know what is, right? <laughs> Expected my wife to erupt in applause, right? Like, how much more heroic can I get, babe? I put it in the dishwasher, right? I almost changed a poopy diaper, but I was like, ah, I can't. I'm going to be an overachiever, right? No, no, seriously, though. Like, no serious acts of sacrifice in obedience, right? And done in the name of God. So stuff you're super proud of, right? And if you're honest, you think things that have made you better, right? Paul says, is a pile of poop compared to knowing and enjoying and loving Jesus personally. And the more I explored this, the more I sat with it and searched this idea out, I've completed all the pleasures in the world of Christ. He wins. Christ wins. Two things became blatantly obvious to me and maybe obvious to you in this moment. Number one, this is not an idea. This is an entire value system. This is a way of looking at the world that drastically differs from the way I look at the world. And number two, I do not believe this. And I love you, neither do you. The more I thought about this, the more I looked at my life, I am working on a completely different value system of what I think brings joy in life. And my heart's going after those things, sometimes really hard. Some of them sinful, some of them not so sinful. But my heart's going after it, man, right? And I love you, so is your heart. Your heart's running, running after what it wants, man, all right? So I'm telling you, uh, so if we, if we think about this, the more I thought about it, right, I said, okay, so, so, Jesus brings more joy than sex, okay? Let me sit with that. Jesus brings more joy than food. Okay, you say, right? We're gonna, I'd rather commune with Jesus than buy a $5 million house in a Tesla. I'm not there, Lord. I'm not there. And yet, this is exactly what Paul is claiming, right? He says, whatever gain I had, loss, for the sake of Christ. Everything lost compared to the surpassing worth. Very, we need to sit with that surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And y'all, here's the deal. We tend to think of Paul as some kind of, you know, hero, cape flapping in the wind, apostle, right? Wrote 13 and we can't really relate to him. We can relate to like David, like, where are you, Lord? But you know, but here's the thing. Like, it's not, he's not just an outlier. Paul's not an outlier in this idea. It's not just him in the Bible. Read the Bible, man. Read the, the book of the Hebrews. The whole thing is saying Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses, better than the laws, better than all these things, right? Better than angels. Read Revelation, right? All creation casting its crowns before the lamb, right? Every, what's a crown? Every accomplishment, every sense of uh, goodness that you yourself bring, casting it down before the lamb. Why? Because he's worthy. Because of his surpassing worth. Read the Psalms. More than a deer pants for water. My soul pants for you, God. One day in your courts is better than a thousand days elsewhere. Psalm 145 says that it's him and him alone who opens his hands and satisfies the desire of every living thing. Psalm 16 claims that comprehensive joy is found in God's presence and his right hand holds eternal pleasure. That's what we read, right? Psalm 63, David says, God's love 
the experience of God's love is better than life itself. This is not a one-off radical Paul saying something that's far and left field. This is the entirety of the Bible. There seems to be a value set in which these people were grasped by that convinced them that to know and love God far surpassed every pleasure and good and advantage that this world had to offer them, right? This is what we have in the Bible. We see a people who have become obsessed with the, what's the phrase? Surpassing worth of knowing God. Is this the value set that you are working with on a daily basis? In which Jesus, communing with the Son of God, right, and all the things that were necessary for that to happen is more to be desired than wealth or possession or physical pleasure or success. Now, everyone breathe. This is not a drive-by guilting. We're just trying to sit with the biblical idea intellectually, honestly. That's all we're trying to do. We're just trying to sit with this, wrestle with it, say, is this the honest reality of my life, right? And if we don't wrestle with things like this on a personal level, y'all, you may miss the one true motivating factor of all authentic Christian living. This idea that God is in our experience, not some theoretical, metaphorical way, but in our experience, in a very real day-to-day experience of our actual living, that God is in reality better than all other joys and delights and pleasures known to man. It is the motivating force of all true Christianity. Being a Christian isn't just mental assent to a set of ideas about God, that he's good, that he's loving, that he's strong. It is delighting in and adoring and worshiping before the reality of his goodness, right? That's what we just did today. Or you could say it this way. The experience of God as worthy, the experience of God as more worthy, surpassing all of the joys and delights, is the force behind all true Christian action. Or you could say how Jesus said it. What's the greatest commandment? To do good, to not sin, Acts of charity, no. The greatest commandment, according to Jesus, is to love the Lord your God. What's that mean? What's that mean? Delight in, rejoice in, take pleasure in God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. And when that issue is settled in the heart, everything else flows accordingly, right? See, if we don't wrestle with this and things like this, we run the risk of being those who honor him with our lips, but our heart is far from him. See, if it's just amen and goosebumps and back to the drudge of life, what good is it, y'all? We have to wrestle with things like this, like Jacob wrestled with God and says, I'm not gonna let you go until you, what, bless me. Are we willing to wrestle with it until we begin to experience in reality this blessing that we can perceive intellectually? Huh? Is my heart drawn to the beauty of God? Do I find myself longing for his nearness in my life? Can I relate to the idea that we read in the Psalms of putting the Lord, like meditating on him as I lie in bed? Are these the things our heart is drawn to. Of, of the whole list of things you have that you think you need to get through a day, all right, caffeine, right? All right, some leisure, some hard work, some, some good food. Of all the things of the list that you have that you think you need to get through the, the day, is he on there? Is God on there? 
Is Christ on there? Is he a resource that you think, if I can't get him, I won't be able to make it? And what I'm telling you is that is the sentiment that we find in Scripture. See, this very modernistic, capitalistic, consumeristic idea that Jesus' decoration on the plate of life is a completely false dichotomy. It's not reality. It's not biblical. It's not what we find in Scripture. What we find in Scripture are hearts that are aflame with passion for the worth of the Son of God. We have to sit with this. On the precipice of a new year, as you begin to think of the kind of person you want to be, as we take time and ponder and, and put the rails on which we want our life to run, we would do well to sit with this. What would it look like if you saw Jesus as the most beautiful most worthy, most excellent, wise person who ever walked on the face of the earth. What would that value set do to your life? All right, not Jesus 2,000 years ago, but the living Christ, Emmanuel, God with us today in this room. Jesus not far from you. Jesus by your side 24-7, right? And as you think about this and ponder this, even for the next year, right, 2020, as you think about the reality of how your suspicion about this whole idea that I'm putting forth to you right now, right? And how often you find your heart, if you're honest, chasing after other lesser pleasures, some of them even sinful, right? I want you to consider this thing, these couple things, right? Why is it that around this time of year, we dream of transformation, and yet by mid-February, it's back to normal? Is it, is it lack of discipline? It, I mean, yes, probably, yes, it is, it is. But there's something else there, right? It's not... Is it, is it lack of just grit and resolve and commitment and strength? Yeah, it is. It is, right? Most of us could probably use a healthy dose of that, but there's something deeper underneath strength and self-discipline and grit and resolve that you lack. What drives all those things? Why be disciplined? Why have resolve? Why have commitment, right? There's something that drives those things. And what I'm telling you is what drives all those things is this one thing, desire. Me. Your desires order your life. Let's just sit with that. Your desires, the things you want, they order your life. They order it all. Let me prove it to you, right? If you want something, and if you want something bad enough, you will reorder your entire life around that pursuit, right? We don't do things, guys, we don't do things because we ought to. We do things because we want to, at least in any lasting way. And we will justify anything to have it if we want it bad enough. You will get up early, you'll stay up late, you'll go without meals, you will betray this person, you will do whatever it takes to get the thing if you want it bad enough, right? So if you want sex and lust and sexual pleasure, you will discipline your life around that pursuit. You will not go to this place. You'll go to this place. You'll not talk to this person. You'll talk to this person. You'll do this to get the money to buy this so you can have that. If you want money and wealth and power bad enough, you will reorder the entirety of your life around that desire. You will leverage this job for that job. You will stay relationally distant so you can backstab that person so you can get ahead of them. You will, do, you will exert an amazing, remarkable amount of discipline and strength when you want it. We chatting? Right? You will give more than you ever thought anyone can give if you want it bad enough. 
right? So if you, uh, I mean, I mean, like, I mean, rem- I mean, think of the things done in the name of getting wealthy. Murder, <laughs> like probably the least on the list. Why? Because someone wanted it. They wanted it to the point that they would betray and abandon all moral sense of ethical behavior to, to achieve it. Risk imprisonment for the rest of their life. Like we're talking about insanity. We're talking about being blinded by something so much that you are obsessed with it that you will do anything you want to take. That's called desire. So what do you want it, right? All right? So if, if, if the thing you want is acceptance and affirmation and approval, you will bend over backwards for people. You will go without sleep. You'll wear clothes you don't like, right? You'll, you'll watch things you don't care about. You'll eat foods you hate. You'll drink drinks you despise as long as you're accepted and affirmed and you will hate yourself for doing it. Right? And on and on and on and on we can go. And what's the driving force? Did they ought to do that? That's the, no. The driving force behind all that ridiculousness was desire. They wanted it. They wanted something. And everything puts, gets put on the sacrificing altar of having that thing. What is it? What is it? What's the thing right now in your heart that you're willing to cross a couple lines to get? What's the thing right now in your heart that you're saying, if I could have that one thing, I'll be okay. What is it, right? There is some value system in you that has produced a desire. And that value system has convinced you, if I could have but that, I would be alive. I'd be okay. And let me tell you, if you can find that, well, it's not very hard because you can ask your friends, but, I mean, you're probably not going to. Um, you could ask your spouse, but I know you're not going to do that. But they could help you figure it out because you know why? You know why? Because you've already ordered your life around it. And it's a lot, it's a lot easier to see from the outside than it is from the inside, right? You will radically reorder your life, lose sleep, go without this or that to have it, right? And if you can't identify it, If you can't identify the thing that you want above all other things, what you will find there is the idol who has usurped the throne of your heart. There you will find your God. And what we often find is that the thing we desire most is something that has gripped our whole being. Our whole being, guys. Our whole being. Everything. Not just our minds, our hearts, right? And as the gears of time crank by us... (laughs) As another year turns, right, I want to ask you right now, what is the driving desire that is ordering your life? And be honest, okay, a lot of times it's not that simple, right? It's not just one thing, Chris. No, but there is one that finds its way to the top amongst a bunch of other ones. And it's the thing, that, and for, some, for some of us, it's as easy as just, I just need to be entertained, I need to disconnect and have a sense of relief in my life. And the way I accomplish that is by mindless entertainment. And you know how you can know that? Because of the, how you structured your life. <laughs> it's how you structured your life. Because you, you, no matter what's going on in your life, you're going to get three hours in front of that thing. Right? No matter what's going on in your life, you're going to get three hours in front of Instagram. No matter what's going on in your life, that's going to happen. So now we're getting somewhere, aren't we? We're getting to the trajectory of our lives. We're getting to the root desires that are ordering every other habit and structure. What is it? 
What is it, man? Uh, You are not simply, what I want you to see right now before we close today, is you are not simply guiding your life by purely rational intellectual means. See, we seem to think that uh, James K. Smith has this thing about how the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment has turned us into, we think about ourselves as being brains on a stick. Like, so we're just purely, so the Enlightenment has convinced us that uh, the universe, us included, are totally rational and intellectually comprehensible, right? He says, the Enlightenment basically says, uh, it it reduces how we think about it, brain on a stick, that you are, we, we think about ourselves as primarily thinking things, And therefore, if we think rightly about things, then we're good. So if we have all the right information, we'll make the right logical decision because science and logic rules the cosmos, right? Uh, And so if the problem in the world is ignorance, then what's the solution? Well, right education, knowing the right thing. And of course there's truth to that. There's some truth, but it's not all truth, right? Because you are not just a rational, logical being. Me and you have these things called desires and emotions, And so what he says is the teachings of Jesus don't just touch the calm, cool, collected space of reflection and contemplation. He is a teacher who invades the heated, passionate regions of the heart. And so James K. Smith says, discipleship may be more a matter of hungering and thirsting than merely knowing and believing. Because you are not merely a rational being. And if you're like, well, I, am. I run my life by logic, Chris, thank you very much. I'm not some emotional basket case. All right. All right, let's go there. Let's ask your spouse if you run your life solely by logic and reason. Because if you had the guts to ask them, they would say, well, there was that one time that you raged out because the cable was broke. And you threw the remote. You threw the remote right at the TV. And the TV broke. Do you remember that? You'd say, yeah, that was expensive. And they'd say, and then there was that time that you refinanced the house we almost had paid off so you could build a theater downstairs. And you'd say, oh, yeah, that, was, that maybe wasn't super logical, was it? No, you won't ask because you'll be reminded of actions and attitudes and things you did that don't even make sense to you because we're not simply rational, logical beings, right? You don't even know why you were so mad that one day, Right? You don't even know why you believed you had to have a 72-inch TV and how it got home, right? Like, is that logic? That ain't logic, bro. Something else is driving. (laughs) Because your life is not simply run by logical, rational things. You got something called desires. You got something called emotions. And they confuse even you sometimes, if you're going to be honest about it, right? Because you're a lot more than just brains on a stick. You're a jumble of rational thought mixed with desires, mixed with disordered desires, mixed with good ones, mixed with emotional forces, mixed with physical chemicals, and a bunch of other stuff, right? And see, this is an interesting thing about, so I'm talking about desire. Buddha recognizes, Buddha, you know Buddha, the Buddha? He recognized this, right? He said, aha, that's the problem with the world. That's the problem. We, he said, this is the, you know the, the noble truth? Uh, life is suffering. We suffer because we desire to end suffering in desire. That's what Buddha said. 
And he's, you know, you think, well, that's, that's, probably, that's probably good. Yeah, we suffer because we desire. So to end suffering, we end desire. And many Christians think like this way too and kind of present a very stoic version of Christianity that breeds self-hate. Christianity says the problem isn't that you have emotions and desires. In fact, those are good and right and God gave them to you. The problem was when those emotions and desires become disordered and chaotic and short-sighted and fixed on the wrong things. Fixed on things, in fact, that look to you like life but in the end lead to death right? You, Christianity says you were made for one ultimate joy, one ultimate pleasure, and all other common joys and pleasures exist to point to that one, and his name is Jesus. So it's a new year. I want to ask you, man, what is guiding your life? And as you consider this, you need to consider the fact that your desires and affections are ordering your life in a way already, they're already structuring your life because we will always live from the overflow of our hearts. So what is your heart being drawn to right now? I love thinking in terms of momentum and trajectory. You know, Christianity likes to present uh, black, uh, you've arrived or you've not arrived, like you're a sinner or you're a saint. And there are a lot of times there's no, what's the trajectory in your heart right now? Okay, you call yourself saved. Okay, if you think you're a Christian, you've already arrived, you've been delivered from this. I'm talking, what's the trajectory going towards, man? And if the trajectory, if the momentum of your heart is drawn to these things that you know are sinful, man, quit talking about it. You be, I mean, come on. Let's be real. What's the momentum of your heart? The desire, how are those things structuring in your life? And you don't have to look, you don't, this is not just an internal organism, this is not just an internal thing you gotta think about. This is, just look at your life, because your life's already structured in it. They've already structured your life. Are we chatting? Perhaps more important for us to consider today is if I realize that I have disordered desires that in many cases are ruining my life, how do I grow in desire for God? And I'm telling you, this is so simple, it's gonna hurt your brain, okay? How do you grow in desire for anything? You look at it. I know, it's like, that's so dumb and it's so true. How do you grow in desire for anything? You look at it. You give it your attention. I'm gonna prove it to you. You didn't even know you wanted a new car till you started looking at them, right? You saw a commercial, and it started with just some innocent Googling, you know? Just innocent Tesla 2022. And guess what you're doing? You're looking, you're beholding, you're gazing, you're fixing your attention. Oh, that's nice. Oh, babe, it has this and that. Oh, wow. Do you, do you get like 350 on an electric charge? Look how the handles, the handles like pop out. It's so cool. Guess what you're doing? You're just looking at it. And then all of a sudden, your life has been reordered. All of a sudden, an obsession takes root in you. And you're refinancing the house, baby. Huh? You get your wife in on it. Babe, look, think about it. Think about it. Think of all the gas money we'd save on this $85,000 car. Right? Right? And innocent Googling research leads to more and more. And then all of a sudden, there you are. Find yourself in a car lot, right? And it started so innocently, right? 
because you gave your attention to it. Yeah? Or you walk in Best Buy for a USB cable and three hours, walk out three hours later with an 8K TV, right? What happened? Well, you walked by, then you stood there, slack jaw, staring at a TV for three hours. And then a guy was like, I can wrap it up for you. And you're like, yeah, wrap it up, man. <laughs> yeah. You grow in desire for what you give your attention to. When you give your undivided attention to a thing, you are forming something. You know what you're forming? Your heart. Your heart. And the more you look at it, the more your heart molds to receive that thing. The more you look at it, the more your heart just wants to adapt, to absorb this thing that you want, and then you're going to have a whole heart. Then you'll be complete. Isn't that it? And all of a sudden, it's haunting every thought. You're thinking about it through the watches of the night, meditating on it as you, huh? You're not just a rational being. And your life is not merely led by intellectual forces, but forces of the heart. Last thing, and then I'll let us go. You telling me, just to prove that point, I just want to press on it. You telling me that you got married to that guy or this girl because it was just a rational thing to do? It was just a calculated assessment of risk and reward and financial planning. Like, if that's why you got married, I'm sorry, buddy. Like, right? No, you married her because you, you pursued her because her beauty captured you. Now, 15 years in, did that love require sacrifice and discipline and grit to protect and sustain? Yes, of course it did. You know why? Because my heart's prone to wander and I have to, Rain it in, right? But it starts with what? Passion, pursuit, love, affections. It started with saying yes to love. And that's the invitation on the table today. To say yes, to begin loving and having affections for the God of the universe. And if you want a remarkable case study in giving your affections to God, I just go home and read the book of Isaiah. Go read the, it's the whole thing. Case study about having affections or lack thereof for God and the paradigm with which we are walking when we reject loving God. And in the middle of Hosea 2.16, it says this. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer my Baali. It's actually the Hebrew word, Baali. That means master. Right in the middle of Hosea, it says, my heart for you is that you call me lover, not Master, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. God is saying to you right now, I want a lover, not just a servant. Hmm? God knows we are more than just sticks on a brain. And he engages our whole person in redemption. What would it look like for you to begin to give God attention and let the affections of your heart be drawn to the maker of the universe? We cannot call ourselves Christians in any real way if there is no semblance of honest love and desire for God in our hearts. We just can't. So we're going to pray together right, right, right where we're at, right where we're sitting. And let's ask God to engage us in this way. Father, let's pray. Lord, 
God, I ask that you would open our eyes to see the surpassing worth of Jesus. Father, I pray some of us right now are suffering in life. Some of us are going through extremely difficult scenarios and all of this just feels otherworldly and unreachable. God, right now I pray that you would open our eyes to the fact that Jesus suffered and that his suffering so far outweighs our suffering. And that he comes alongside of us in the midst of this right now. God, I pray that you'd open our eyes to see the surpassing worth of Jesus. God, we confess the short-sightedness of our hearts and desires that continually draw us to lesser things. And Father, we ask that you would give us, like you say in scripture, a heart of flesh in place of a heart of stone. Father, we acknowledge before you a hardness of heart that keeps us outside. It, Lord, it feels like it locks us out of loving and knowing and delighting in you. And worship is an enigma to us. We don't understand why people would sacrifice so much for Christianity, why they'd move across the world or spread the name of Jesus. It just befuddles us, Lord. Open our hearts now to begin to see and behold the worth of Jesus. There's no one else worthier, no one else wiser. God, that his wisdom would seem to us treasure in a field, right? That his sacrifice, his, his nearness would seem to us treasure in a field, that we would sell everything else we have and go buy that field so we could have it. That's Christianity. So Father, I just ask now, God, that you would move on our hearts, Holy Spirit, and you would warm our hearts to have affections for you. God, that our hearts would begin to honestly adore and worship who you are. We love you. In your name we pray these things. Amen. Stand with me, guys.